So if you'll turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 9, we will be looking at that text today as well as part of 10. It's a pretty big chunk of text today, um, but it all goes together to show this idea of God's providence, how he is continually working behind the scenes, as it were, to bring about redemption. And so let us uh, go to the Lord again in prayer before we go to this text so that we might uh, have his help with it. Father, again, we come to you. This time we ask for specifically for your help, for your mercy when we come to your word. We are a people who would take different things away from your word depending on our own fickle needs. The Lord, give to us what you would have us learn from your word. Convict us of our sin. Show us your majesty. Show us your truth and your mercy. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So this uh, week at our Wednesday morning Bible study, I actually shared a story and it kind of reminded me of um, how this particular text went right along with that story. It kind of goes along with our whole theme of the Lord's providence and the way he does things. But it was um, when I was in college, I'd worked several jobs, um, several different sorts of jobs. I worked like office worker to selling computers. But probably my least favorite and most difficult job was when I worked fast food. Uh, I did that for three years, two different stints of one year and a, and a half. And both were just about as fun as you think they were. Um, fast food workers tend to get dehumanized as much as any service-oriented job out there. And if you've ever worked in service to the community, you know what dehumanization is. If you've ever worked fast food, you really know what it is. And I think this, there are several reasons behind it. And I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that people walk in, they expect to get a certain thing for their money. And that certain thing is usually goes beyond just the simple food item on the menu. And when they don't get that thing, whatever they decide that thing is, they blame the person behind the counter, even though most of the time the problem really isn't that person's fault. I would say 90% of the time the person or the problem isn't that person's fault. It's something going on behind the counter. It's something that probably is systemically wrong with the organization, I think, a lot of times. And many times, many times the problem exists even with the one who's placing the order one who's complaining. I find it funny that there's al- it's always the same people that have problems at fast food restaurants. It's because there's a common denominator in that situation. It's always them. I, and I couldn't have known until years later that it was dealing with these exact stresses that would have prepared me most for working as a pastor. That isn't a, a hit on you all. You all, I, I love this church. Not to say I didn't love my previous churches, but maybe I should just stop talking. Uh, it isn't about the trials and tribulations of pastoral work because those same difficulties exist anytime you're working with people. You guys know that. Several of you work with people directly. It's not a pastoral thing. It's just a people thing. However, I likely wouldn't have chosen to work with people directly, if it weren't for the fact that Hardy's, the place that I work here in town, 
was one of the only places hiring at the time. And I needed a job that day because my my fantastic mother told me she was not going to put money in my bank anymore. Which That's the best thing that's ever happened to me, Mom, just if you're listening. And they, because they served food, and well, I was hungry. And that all kind of worked together for me to have this long-lasting job as a poor college kid working fast food. This is about the providence of God. This isn't about these trials and tribulations. And we throw around this word providence a lot in Christian circles sometimes. And I think any more people use it only to talk about the good things that the God, that God is doing. Well, that's just his providence. It's something good. Or they'll say something cute like, it's a God thing. As if all things aren't God things. Providence, put pl- plainly, is just God preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. We've said that already. We saw that in our confession. That's the exact wording of the Shorter Catechism. And so in our text today, we're going to see God's providence in a different way than we are usually forced to view it. Because I think normally, typically, we're forced to view it in this in hindsight, like me looking back at my job at, at Hardy's you know, almost 20 years ago. Much like you know, any time that we have something going on in our lives, something that we think to be dreadful at the time, but we look back and we see some merit in it. Today, we're going to see this providence in action, behind the scenes, kind of like looking at the whole field all at the same time, because we have scripture in front of us that tells us the story, that tells us what the Lord is doing. And I think we should be encouraged by this, because oftentimes I think we get lost in the details of life. We forget that God is in the midst of it all, orchestrating it all for our good and for his glory. And so with this text, we're going to look at three main ideas, the providence of God, the power of God, and then finally the mercy of God. And so with that, I'm going to read the text. This is 1 Samuel 9 and part of 10. You may remain seated if you'd like to, because this is a particularly large chunk of text. And so let's read this together. Or let me read this to you, 1 Samuel 9, and then part of 10. There was a man of Benjamin, whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, son of Zeror, son of Bekorath, son of Aphia, a Benjaminite, a man of wealth. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. Now the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. So Kish said to Saul, his son, Take one of the young men with you, and arise. Go and look for the donkeys. And he passed through the hill country of Ephraim, and he passed through the land of Shalisha, and he did not find them. And they passed through the land of Shalim, and they, and they were not there. But then they passed through the land of Benjamin, but did not find them. When they came to the land of Zuph, Saul said to his servant who was with him, Come, let us go back, lest my father cease to care about the donkeys and become anxious about us. But he said to him, Behold, there is a man of God in this city, and he is a man who is held in honor. All he says comes true. So now let's go there. Perhaps he can tell us the way we should go. Then Saul said to his servant, But if we go, what can we bring this man? For the bread for the bread in our sacks is gone, and there is no present to bring the man of God. 
what do we have? The servant answered Saul again, Here, I have a quarter of a shekel of silver, and I will give it to the man of God to tell us our way. Formerly in Israel, when a man went to inquire of God, he said, Come, let us go to the seer. For today's prophet was formerly called a seer. And Saul said to his servant, Well said, Come, let us go. So they went to the city where the man of God was. And they went up to the hill of the city, or as they went up to the hill to the city, they met young women coming out to draw water and said to them, Is the seer here? They answered, He is. Behold, he is just ahead of you. Hurry. He has come just now to the city because the people have a sacrifice today on the high place. As soon as you enter the city, you will find him before he goes up to the high place to eat. For the people will not eat till he comes, since he must bless the sacrifice. Afterwards, those who are invited will eat. Now go up, for you will meet him immediately. So they went up to the city, and they were entering the city. They saw Samuel coming out toward them on his way up to the high place. Now the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel, Tomorrow, about this time, I will send to you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I have seen my people, because of their cry has come to me. When Samuel saw Saul, saw, saw, the Lord told him, Here is the man from whom I spoke to you. He it is who will who shall restrain my people. Then Saul approached Samuel in the gate and said, Tell me, where is the house of the seer? Samuel answered Saul, I am the seer. Go up before me to the high place, for today you shall eat with me. And in the morning I will let you go and will tell you all that is on your mind. As for your donkeys that were lost three days ago, do not set your mind on them, for they have been found. And for whom, for whom is all that is desirable in Israel? Is it not for you and for your father's house? Saul answered, Am I not a Benjaminite from the, from the least of the tribes of Israel? And is not my clan the humblest of all the clans of, the, of Benjamin? Why then have you spoken to me in this way? Then Samuel took Saul and his young man and brought them to the hall and gave them a place at the head of those who had been invited, who were about thirty persons. And Samuel said to the cook, Bring him the portion that I gave you, of which I said to you, put it aside. So the cook took up the leg and and what was on it and set it before Saul. And Samuel said, See, what was kept is set before you. Eat, because it was kept for you until the hour appointed, that you might eat with the guests. So Saul ate with Samuel that day. And when they came down from the from the high place into the city, a bed was spread before Saul on the roof, and he laid down to sleep. Then at the break of dawn, Samuel called to Saul up on the roof, up, that I may send you on your way. So Saul arose, both he and Samuel, went out into the street. As they were going down to the outskirts of the city, Samuel said to Saul, Tell the servant to pass on before us, and when he has passed on, stop here yourself for a while, that I may make known to you the word of God. Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel? And you shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you will save them from the hand of from the hand of their surrounding enemies. And this shall be a sign to you that the Lord has appointed you to be prince over his heritage. When you depart from me today, you will meet two men by Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin at Zelzah, and they will say to you, The donkeys that you went to seek that you went 
to seek are found. And now your father has ceased to care about the donkeys and is anxious about you, saying, What shall I do about my son? Then you shall go up further, up farther, and come to the oak of Tabor. Three men are going to God at Bethel, will meet you there, one carrying three young goats, another carrying three loaves of bread, and another a skin of wine. And they will greet you and give you two loaves of bread, which you shall accept from their hand. After that, you shall come to Gibeath Elohim, from from there is a from from where there is a garrison of the Philistines. And there, as soon as you come to the city, you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with harp, tambourine, flute, and lyre before them, prophesying. Then the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you, and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. Now when these signs meet you, do what your hand finds to do, for God is with you. Then go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I am coming to you to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you will wait until I come to you to show you what you shall do. When he turned his back to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart. And all these signs came to pass that day. When they came to Gibeah, behold, a man of the prophets met with him, and the Spirit of God rushed upon him, and he prophesied among them. And when all who, who had previously saw how he prophesied to the prophets, the people said to one another, What has come over this son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? And the man of the place answered, And who is their father? Therefore it became a proverb, Is Saul also among the prophets? When he had finished prophesying, he came to the high place. Saul's uncle said to him, to his servant, Where did you go? And he said, To seek the donkeys. And when we saw that they were not to be found, we went to Samuel. And Saul's uncle said, Please tell me what Samuel said to you. And Saul said to his uncle, He told us plainly that the donkeys had been found. But about the matter of the kingdom of which Samuel had spoken, he did not tell him anything. Amen. This is God's word. And so, here we have this story, very much detailed, written in lots of details, if you, if you noticed. To show us, first, the providence of God. And so, first, I want to just point out a few things about Saul that were given there at the beginning of chapter 9. A few interesting notes. He is among other leaders in Scripture that share this job of shepherd, of tending animals. Just think about it. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, Moses, all of these great leaders of the faith were shepherds except they were actually good at it. Saul doesn't seem to be a very good shepherd, having lost several donkeys and now being unable to find them. Um, he doesn't seem to be a particularly good shepherd, and I think a lot of times when we read this, you know, that there, there's some donkeys that have gone, we may want to just kind of pass over it. But a donkey represented a lot of wealth to a person. Um, one commentator compared it to, like, misplacing a paycheck or something. That's a lot of money. And so for, for the farmer to lose these donkeys was to him to say, we have to go find them. They just didn't simply just let donkeys vanish. And so Saul had to go find them, uh, but he never, he never does do that, of course. And, and so I think it's important for us to, to notice here that kingly people are rarely chosen as kings in Scripture. 
God uses all sorts of different people to lead his people, to, to deliver his people. And here is Saul, even though he's handsome and taller than anybody, he doesn't seem to be a particularly good farmer. And so next we're going to come to this series of coincidences, which of course you know in the Christian life we don't believe in coincidence. But it is fascinating to kind of read through this story, and then you get down to verse 15. Now the day before Saul came, the Lord revealed to Samuel, and then he told him all these things that were going to happen. But can you imagine being Saul and his friend, and all of these things happening, and then it just so happens that you meet up with Samuel, and he tells you that you're going to be king of Israel. Must have been fairly fascinating, I would imagine. All these different things that are working out for Saul and his friend. They travel several days, says three days, to travel to find these donkeys. They travel all across the countryside, and all of these hillsides and countrysides that they're traveling across looking for these donkeys, and they just happen to end near Samuel's hometown, where he's going to be. And then they decide to talk to Samuel. Well, they don't even know his name. They just said, there's this, there's this prophet or this seer that can tell us maybe where the donkeys are, and we should go to him. And one of them just happens to have some silver in his backpack to give the prophet. Which is fascinating, because they were going on a trip to find donkeys, and why would you carry silver with you? He just happened to have a small bit of silver, a present for the prophet. And it just so happens that at this time, Samuel, who was, remember from the other text, was a traveling prophet. He went around to all these different cities. He was constantly ministering to the different places. But it just so happens that he was going to be there in this area to make sacrifice and to eat with the people. So all of these stories are coming together in order to bring about God's purpose. And then you get Samuel's point of view. You know, Samuel is told there's going to be a man and he's going to come. And this is the man that I want to lead my people. It might be easy for us to think that this whole thing is a string of interesting coincidences if it weren't for hearing Samuel's side of the story, which is basically the Lord telling him what's going to happen. The Lord tells him to prepare for this man because this man is the one that I have chosen. So let's think about it in our own lives. It might be easy, I think, for us to look at Saul and think, well, he was a bad shepherd, and we know Saul's story. He was a worse king. And to look at the events of his life and to see how the Lord worked them out from start to finish, and maybe think, well, okay, well, Saul's obviously an important figure in redemption. And so the Lord would need to orchestrate all these things in his life in order for them to work perfectly so that the Lord's purposes can be accomplished. But for us, for us ordinary folk, it might be easy for us to dismiss his actions in our own lives. We aren't kings or prophets or any kind of deliverer. We aren't anybody when we think about it in those terms. However, this is not the Lord's way. He doesn't simply work with the quote-unquote important people and let the lives of everyone else kind of rise and fall with the tides or kind of go as the cookie crumbles, if it were. Thankfully, he has a stake 
in the lives of each and every one of us. And not just us, but all of his creatures, all of his creation. I mean, look at Psalm 147 there in the bulletin. He cares for all of his creatures. He cares for the ravens that cry. He, he orchestrates and, and helps all of them. What about Jesus in Matthew 6? The sparrow doesn't ever want for food. The flowers always look nice. All right? And these are just the least of his creations. And so we have to come to face-to-face with the idea that the Lord has looks at us, his people who were made in his image, in a special way. Proverbs 16, 9 says this, The heart of man plans out his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. And so his interactions with us aren't simply to sit back and to watch and to hope it all comes together, and then to take these few that are important and actually kind of guide them in their lives. But he does that for each one of us. I love the, the word there. He establishes our steps, which is to say that he provides for our steps. He prepares our steps. And of course, from our end, what does it look like? We still plan. We still act. We still do things. But our actions have been mapped out from the foundations of the earth. Each action, each thought, in place to bring about the Lord's holy will. And the Lord's will for a future king of Israel is no more or less important than what he has for us on this particular December Sunday. And so what do we do then in, in the face of this? We trust the Lord. We live our lives according to his word. We preach the gospel. We raise our families. We nurture our marriages. All the while knowing that the Lord has good for those who love him. He has his glory and our good in view. And I think it should also excite us. When we consider the good shepherd, Jesus Christ, who is king of all kings, just consider his story. Consider as we read the Old Testament and we see how God orchestrates the coming Savior, of how the people were before Jesus came and how the people were after him, the people that pointed to him before him, the one that came after Saul, for instance, King David, it's a great example of one that pointed to him. And this time of year, when we celebrate the birth of our Lord Jesus, consider how everything has pointed to him in time and in history, and all things have pointed to him so that he would be born for such a time and such a place. David was a better shepherd than Saul, to be sure, but like all pictures, They pale in comparison to the perfect reality that is our Lord Jesus. He is the good shepherd. And all creation, all providence points to his coming, his life, death, resurrection, and the fact that he's coming in the judge. And so next, let's look at the power of God. I love how when we get to chapter 10, we have this idea of 
these prophecies that kind of come true concerning Saul, and not to say that the rest of it isn't as well, because it definitely is, this whole line going forward. And you can just imagine Saul being this country boy who's sitting there, and they're like, okay, bring out the bring out the portion just for him. And they bring out this whole leg and put it before him. Just pretty incredible. I mean, I'd like to be Saul on that day. Everyone else is like eating this small piece of meat. He's got like a whole leg out before him. And he just came to ask about a few donkeys. And now he's sitting and he's at the place of honor and he's eating like a king. Because, well, he's been chosen to be king. Why? Because he was, who knows? That's why the Lord did it. You know, is it because he was tall and handsome? Doubtful. Was it because he was a good shepherd? No. And so it was just because he was Saul of Kish, a Benjaminite. And so Samuel, who has been given these instructions, I mean, you know Samuel's heart in this, and we see we get to see a bit of Samuel's heart later when he goes to choose a new king, and he has to choose among the sons of Jesse, and and thinks that the big strong one should be king. So you, you wonder how Samuel's kind of going through this. But Samuel's listening to the Lord. And now in, in chapter 10, he gives Saul a series of prophecies that tell Saul, well, these things, after you leave me, these things are going to happen to you. And every one of them come true. The donkey is found, or all the donkeys are found. And Saul's dad is now more concerned about Saul than he is about the donkeys. They meet the dudes that are sacrificing the young goats. And now we're actually shown that they meet these prophets and Saul is with them and he is prophesying among them where these other people see Saul prophesying. And I love this little section of scripture that the people were so surprised to see Saul prophesying. It was an, it was really odd for the people to see that. And they end up crafting this kind of local proverb that says, it's kind of like our own, um, I never cease to be amazed, or uh, nothing ceases to amaze me, or, you know, it's something like that when they see this strange happening of Paul or, or of Saul prophesying. And they say, is Saul also among the prophets? Because who would have thought that a farm boy from Benjamin would be a prophet, and later a king? And where did all this come from? Where, is it because Saul is somehow deserving and good? No, look at verse 9 of chapter 10. When he turned his back to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart. And all these signs came to pass that day. Verse 10. When they came to Gibeah, behold, a group of prophets met him, and the Spirit of God rushed upon him. And he prophesied among them. Where did this power come from that Saul all of a sudden has? God changed his heart. God's spirit rushed upon him. Saul did not do any of this on his own. But it was because of the spirit of God in his life that he did it. And where was the power? Lest we forget, it was in the word of God. Samuel, the prophet of God, being told that these things would happen, and they did. The people in the area looking at Saul. However, we are giving a little bit, given a little bit more insight here. We kind of see behind the scenes. You can imagine the people. Wow, 
Even Saul's a prophet now. But what do we see? We see the power of God actually working in Saul. And so whose power is on display here? It's not that Saul all of a sudden became this wise prophet. God's power is on display. His power is tied up in his word. And I think for us, we need to understand that too. This is a good word for us. That we have no power outside of his word. I think it's an important idea for us today as much as any time ever, really. Because I think a lot of times, even in the church, in business, uh, in, in a group of people, relationships, whatever, a lot of weight is given to a person who can apparently speak wisdom, who can can speak good things that sound wise and sound good to us among us, business, anything else, school, whatever's going on. There are always going to be people who are going to parade themselves as wise. But when any kind of standard is applied to them, they are shown to be false. And I think the church is particularly susceptible to this because of the nature of our faith. What is the nature of our faith? So much of what we talk about and so much of what we believe is unseen and experiential. You know, I, I believe in Jesus Christ, and he is at the right hand of the Father right now. Can I show you that? No, I can't take you there. I can show you in Scripture where it says that. I believe that the Lord God has changed my life. Because he has. I have experienced that. But can I, like, give you data to make that look right? No, I can't. I've experienced that. I accept it on faith. And so, for instance, when someone says that they're a Christian, what do we do? We generally take them at their word, unless they prove otherwise to us. And so, we need to understand as Christians, what is the standard that we apply to the Christian faith to demonstrate whether something is real, whether something is the actual power of God or not? What is that standard that we apply? The scriptures. And the scriptures alone. We don't test our own experience against it. We don't test the words of someone who simply says that they're wise. We test everything against the scriptures because only there rests the power of God to change lives. The scriptures say that over and over again, and we believe them because they are the words of God. And I say this just to make sure that we're careful when it comes to talking about what God is doing in our lives. And more importantly, in the lives of someone else. I think we're real quick to point out what God might be doing, especially in other people's lives. But we should always check those things against what Scripture says. And what God has done. We know what he has done because we have this written down. God doesn't tend to do like something just brand new. His words are here for us. His ways are here for us. God did use Saul to speak his words in that day. No one would have believed it if it weren't a part of sacred scripture. Scripture is not being added to any longer. So when it comes to this doctrine of providence, 
We should always apply the standard that we have instead of attempting to guess at what the Lord might be doing because this standard is the Word of God. And the lastly, let's look at the mercy of God. People cried out to God. Look at verse 16 of chapter 9. Tomorrow, about this time, I will send to you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over the people of Israel. He shall save my people from the land of the Philistines, for I have seen my people because their cry has come to me. This reminds me a lot of the Exodus when the people cried out to the Lord and he heard their cries and he delivered them. And and I think this also should take us back to chapter 8 because what happened in chapter 8? In chapter 8 we're told that the people were rejecting the Lord because of their desire for a king to rule them. And now what is he doing? Now he's using a king to save his people from the hand of the Philistines. And so how should we view this? Well, for one, there is only one time in history, and there will only ever be one time in history, where the Lord uses a perfect man to save his people. And that was the ultimate time, the ultimate of salva- the ultimate salvation, the real salvation that people needed. However, look at the rest of Scripture. What does he use, or who does he use, over and over in Scripture to save his people? People like Saul. People like David. People who aren't even Israelites. People that don't even believe in God. People that believe in other gods. The Lord does as he pleases. So why would it bother us if the Lord might use a bad shepherd and future bad king to deliver his people in the short term? Again, he does as he pleases. More often than not, it pleases him to have mercy on his people. Thank goodness. And he uses any means he pleases to demonstrate that mercy. But in this case, he hears the cries of his people. He saves them with a farmer who is happens to be the most handsome Israelite. Think of my own case. In my own case, he used a puppet show at the Baptist Student Union to show me a gospel that I had never heard before. A puppet show. Something that if I before right if I before I walked in, if you just say, Hey, they're about to show you a puppet show, I'm about to say, I'm about to go the other way then, because I don't care about puppets. But he used a puppet show to like teach the gospel to me. The Lord uses meager and mundane mundane things of the earth to demonstrate his mercy. Why? Because he is the power of salvation, not the thing. If we are his, he will act in such a way to bring us to himself. I think that's our encouragement, brothers and sisters, as we preach the gospel, as we grow this church, as we meet together. He is the one who does the work. He is the one who is the power of the gospel. I mean, think about even those who are among our the people that we know, our contacts, who the Lord will bring to himself. There are definitely those who are lost people that we know that the Lord will bring to himself. 
and he may use us, preaching the gospel to them as a means to deliver them. Again, why? Because he uses the meager and mundane things to bring about his magnificent purposes. And I'm sorry to say, our preaching is often meager and mundane. Because we have trouble talking about these things that are so great and so marvelous and so wonderful. But thankfully the Lord uses, what does he say, what does the the Apostle Paul say? The foolishness of preaching to save his people. And so in conclusion, then, how should we live? We trust the ways of the Lord, even though we don't understand them. We trust that he is acting and he is moving all the time. There is never a moment where the Lord rests and says, not today. I'm going to just kind of let things happen. He doesn't do that. All the things he does, everything, whether it appears to be, appears to be good or not, is all for our good and for his glory. I think secondly, we listen to his instructions in the word. There is power in the word of God. And it is there and only there that we find truth and power. And so, brothers and sisters, let us more and more listen to what he has to tell us. Not only about who he is, but what we should do. And what we should say. And I think lastly, along those lines, we marvel at his works. We marvel at the things that he does. That he uses things like fast food restaurants and puppet shows to bring about goodness in his people. And when we marvel at those works, we should tell others. We will continually see his mercy in what he's doing. And let us then glory in the mercy that he has shown us, and use it as a door or a way to push us out the door so that we might tell others. Let's go to him in prayer. Lord, we thank you that you have orchestrated all things, all time, all creatures, all your creation to bring about the salvation of your people through your Son, Jesus Christ. And we have this story here in Scripture to show us just that. To show us that you are constantly acting and moving to bring about your redemptive purposes and your plan. And you do so not only with the kings and the prophets of the earth, but you do so with us, your simple people. And so, Lord, help us to trust in you, to trust in the things that you are doing. And, Lord, help us then to, in seeing your goodness and mercy, tell others about what you're doing and what you have done. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.